Welcome to More to Come, PW Comics World's weekly podcast of comics and graphic novel news, recorded in the offices of Publishers Weekly in New York City. Uh, this week, I am Heidi McDonald, the editor-in-chief of The Beat at ComicsBeat.com. Uh, you can check us out uh, on PW Comics World, uh, at PW Comics World on Twitter, and uh, on the web at PublishersWeekly.com slash comics. And I'm Kate Fitzsimmons, this week and every week, and you can find... The Fanatic, Publishers Weekly's comic book and pop culture newsletter. And you can find The Fanatic, Publishers Weekly's pop culture newsletter at publishersweekly.com slash comics, along with all of our comics coverage. And you can find us on Tumblr and on Facebook also at PW Comics World. And as you can tell, Kate and I are here without Calvin. So Calvin had some urgent personal business he had to take care of this week, but he's fine. Don't worry about it. Uh, everything good with Calvin. But uh, as you can see, uh, we're struggling to do his intro. Uh, <laughs> yeah. But- <laughs> on that note, um, things are going to be a little different here on uh, Comics World for the next two weeks because next week... Uh, I'm just going to be a little drop-in voice because I'm going to be on the other side of the world reporting in from Japan. Da, 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 da. Yes, uh, Kate on the move. Okay, the travels of Kate. So, yes, so, uh, and if you don't like that, well, then let us know in the comments. Please leave us comments, rate us on you, YouTube, uh, YouTube, on iTunes, uh, on Stitcher, on anywhere fine podcasts are found, or write us a letter, you know, tweet at us, Facebook at us, Tumblr at us. Uh, we love getting feedback from our wonderful listeners. Do we have a YouTube, Heidi? I don't know, do we? I don't think so. Oh, anyway, I'm sorry. We don't have YouTube. I always get iTunes and YouTube mixed up because I'm old and stupid. You're not stupid. This is just all science fiction to you. Yes. It's hard to keep the world-building details straight. That's right. So this week, what are our topics, So Heidi? this week on More to Come, we're going to be talking about uh, PW's best books, their graphic novelists. We're also going to preview Anime NYC and uh, talk about Comic Start Brooklyn, uh, Turmoil at Walker Stalker, and Game of Thrones, Star Wars, Toxic Fandom versus Toxic Showrunners. So, yes. PW's best books came out this week, uh, which I had nothing to do with whatsoever. Uh, however, uh, it's five books that were chosen by Calvin and Meg. And uh, I think, listeners, if you've been listening to us all along here, you might have a pretty good idea of what they are. Uh, one is Clyde Fans by Seth, one of my favorites. Uh, Rusty Brown by Chris Ware. They Called Us Enemy by George Takai, the story of his internment as a small child. Now, Kate, can you guess what the other two are? Gosh, Heidi, what are they? Well, they might be books that you and I, the first time Calvin mentioned them, we were like, got it, nailed it. Okay. Anyway, we totally nailed it. Uh, the other books are Hot Comb uh, by Ebony Flowers and Good Talk by Mira Jacobs. <laughs> yeah, we nailed it. We nailed it. Uh, anyway, they're and two two awesome books, by the way. We're not. We don't mean to denigrate. No, they, no. They, we're not putting these books down because they're amazing. It's no. just we 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 knew we could tell the minute Calvin started talking about them. And you and listeners, there is audio evidence of this. Oh no, yeah. Because yeah, just go be- back and listen. Yeah, because. Heidi and I had a prediction <laughs> way, way back at the beginning of 2019 on our guesses for Calvin's 
new hot book of the year. Yes. And we were tied on these two books. We were. We didn't know which would be, uh, went out. But you know, Mira Jacob was on the cover of Publishers Weekly. So she's, I mean, she's a huge story. Don't, don't get us wrong. No, we're not saying any of these people aren't great. Yes. We're saying that, um, among all the really good books of this year, there were some very specific ones that hit Calvin's spot. And we, as people who know him very well, were trying to guess which books those would be. Yes. And, uh, so, but I mean, congratulates to all the, all of them. I mean, it's another, um, amazing year in graphic novels, obviously. So many books for young readers came out. Um, I know one book that is an, also Calvin is very much in love with is Pittsburgh by Frank Santoro. And I know it just missed the list by, by this much, but, uh, there will be an expanded list. And of course, they'll be doing the critics poll for Publishers Weekly, as always. Uh, coming out later in the, in December. So, uh, there will be more best books coming from Publishers Weekly. So. Prediction. I will be one of the people, uh, contributing the book that nobody else thought of to the critics poll. You often are, Kate, but that shows just how widely read we are. So. It does. It does. The wide range of our wonderful reviewers here at Publishers Weekly That's Magazine. That's right. And, uh, you know, I knew I have to cram for my reading, uh, at the beat we're working on our best of list for the year. And, I spend so much time doing all the mundane administrative tasks of running the beat these days that I have barely any time to read. So, uh, better get up, uh, up to speed on that. But you know, now that baseball season is over, I have lots of spare time. So there we go. So, okay. Uh, cons. Uh, so I, <laughs> in both senses of the yes, word, dear listeners, so in both I, senses of the word. So we'll talk about the past first. So I was at Comic Arts Brooklyn this past weekend. So this is the indie focus show that's held at Pratt in Brooklyn. Um, Calvin was there too. Actually, he moderated Frank Santoro's panel. Um, I was just wandering around looking at the books and this is kind of the show that wraps up, uh, New York's show, you know, sh- comic shows for the year. Uh, very indie centric. Uh, Chris Ware was a guest there. Uh, so was Gary Panter, um, Lauren Weinstein, um, yeah, uh, Aline Kaminsky Crum was there. So, you know, obviously superstars. And I, I kind of almost don't have, this is going to be a very abbreviated, uh, podcast without Calvin, but I, I also don't even have that much to say except how awesome it was. Um, they took over the entire gymnasium this year as opposed to having about two thirds of it last year. So the show is growing. Um, had incredible, um, incredible, uh, panels, uh, put together and just, uh, so many great cartoonists out there. So it was a little sad. Uh, the Koyama table is probably the last one that we'll be seeing. I think their, their last uh, show that they're doing is TCAF next year. Then Anna Kiyama is kind of retiring from, uh, running Koyama Press. But I talked to a couple of people at the table and they let on that, um, you know, she will be involved doing something, so so she won't be entirely gone. But um, yeah, you know, yay comics. Uh, Calvin wrote a story about this. You can find this on publishersweekly.com/slash/comics, and um, it's a very successful show. So, Kate, you will be traveling, but you have been more up on uh, Anime NYC. What what will those who attend have to look forward to? So, dear listeners. Brooklyn Comics Arts Festival is not actually the last show of the season. Arguably, there's one more show, although it does tend more to the foreign comics. It is Anime NYC, and it's going to be running at the Javits Center from November 15th through the 17th. Um, sadly, I will not be here. I will be in the home of anime. <laughs> I'll be at a lot of it that I cannot read because no translations in Japan. <clears throat> 
I guess I'll just have to have that VPN up and up and running. Um, basically, it is the anime con that New York City deserves. Um, I've been very critical about one aspect of New York Comic Con, a convention that I otherwise love dearly, and that is that um, just the way they've treated anime programming. Because first, they basically ate New York's previous anime con, and then they gave it, like, one room in the basement, and then they gave it, like, nothing, and then they sent its reanimated corpse (laughs) to appear in the middle of nowhere, and then they turned its reanimated corpse into a photo op with a pay-to-view panel section, which, no. But not to worry, dear listeners, someone saw the gap in the market, and that someone is a former uh, New York Comic Con employee. And so now we have Anime NYC, an actually good Anime Con. Yeah, I haven't been able to go to it, actually, because usually I'm out of town that weekend, but I actually will be home. So I should, uh, I'm going to try to to pop by. I know... um Calvin will be going. Erica Friedman, my uh, frequent uh, podcast partner on my other podcast, will be there. Uh, and a lot of uh, my beat writers are very excited about going. So, you know, anime has really had a huge resurgence, hasn't it, Kate? Well, I don't know that it ever went away. Right. It's really more that, once again, there's an easy way for it to get legitimately to English-speaking audiences in the United States. So there was definitely a period of time after Cartoon Network stopped showing so much late-night anime. And there weren't really a lot of other outlets that it was playing on TV at that time, where if you did not want to spend an awful lot of money on anime, or, you know, it was that, or Netflix, but if you were just, like, the ability to browse, right? the ability to just flip a channel or scroll and find some anime, was not that great. Like, Netflix streaming had, you know, a few. Um, if you wanted to invest the money in Crunchyroll, you could see some stuff, but you had to already be a dedicated fan. It wasn't great for recruiting new people. But now, um, Amazon Prime and Netflix have really beefed up their anime offerings, so it's bringing in whole new generations of fans, and also recruiting casual fans who had fallen away back into the fold. And you can really see the effect of that on manga sales as well as anime DVD sales in the United States. We talked about that after at the ICB2 conference, how uh, BookScan had some numbers that showed a very direct correlation between... Absolutely. I mean, yeah, I mean, you you, you know, this is a no-brainer. And uh, it is... I mean, it's it's rather humorous to see how uh, New York Comic Con. I mean, New York Comic Con has a huge anime manga presence. Uh, without, well, not huge, but I mean the fans. There's a lot of cosplay. There are a lot there. of fans. Yes, there's a lot of fans. Like the enthusiasm for the material is there at New York Comic Con, and uh, you know, the, to see how they've kind of mangled this attempt to do a show just to kind of, you know, head off anime NYC at the pass is is. Um, Anyway, yeah. anyone, everyone who's really interested will probably be at this anime NYC show because it's got a much uh, more well-rounded uh, profile. Yeah, and give it its due. It's a really good show. If 
New York Comic Con is a bit too bonkers insane for you, which, I mean, it kind of is a little bonkers insane. It's not as bad as San Diego Comic Con, but it's getting up there. It's it's uh, like Dragon Con without the booze. Right. Or the Klingons. <laughs> um, it, it's, it's, it's big enough to feel satisfyingly large. But it's small enough that you don't feel the strain of way too many people in the space. Right. Last year, it took up maybe mm, half the Javits. But half the Javits was pretty nice. It worked pretty good. Um, It didn't feel empty. It didn't feel echoing. Everyone could go to the bathroom. Everyone could get to the bathroom. Well, not. I mean, there was a little bit of a line, (laughs) but it wasn't crazy. There was enough food vendors to go around. Um, but yet it was, was very well attended and felt buzzy and active and fun. Um, it really felt like a good small city con, kind, medium-sized city con. I mean, if I was told, if I listened to the accents and looked at what was around me and didn't know the Javits, I would say, head tilt, Philadelphia? Question mark. <laughs> um, so I really think there's room to grow. My guess is that Anime NYC this year will be bigger than Anime NYC last year, and it's going to continue to grow until it hits peak, probably in three or four years. Yeah. It's uh. definitely a con on the rise, um, and everything in my past experience there is done very well. The um, the security's better. The setup is better. The understanding of the anime and manga audience and how to program it is spot on as opposed to somewhat blundering <laughs> attempts of New York Comic Con. Yeah. I mean, it, it feels like a show run by people who actually care about the material as opposed to a cash grab. Yeah. Well, you know, I was eating at Go Go Curry in the village the mm-hmm. other day and I saw all these signs for anime uh, NYC up at the the Japanese curry place and uh it was it was you know there's a very thriving subculture here obviously yeah uh and um Kate do you go to any other yeah, like anime shows besides anime NYC or well I've been to other ones um partly I'm spoiled by New York that if I were living somewhere with fewer shows, I would think like, well, of course I'll travel, you know, an extra 50 miles to get to a show. No problem. But, you know, you got like New York Comic Con, like a block from the subway stop. Yeah. And it's a little harder to get yourself motivated. But um, in years past, uh, there was one out in Secaucus that I went to one year it was actually quite good hmm. um, I think it may still be running but because that one is I believe fan run in much the same way that a lot of of conventions are like Anime NYC does have a corporate backing but there's right. a whole other tradition of conventions which are non-professionally run Yes, and sometimes that causes problems. Sometimes it causes problems, but sometimes it creates great shows that wouldn't exist otherwise. Yes. And so this was definitely one of those shows. They have a very community feel. They tend to be more centered on fans than on celebrity guests, so they'll get them if they can get them. Um, but I think Anime NYC has a nice balance between feeling 
too corporate or being run by people who may not be able to devote their full attention to it. Right. Right. Um, well, there's, I know there's, um, driving right now, obviously there's Otakon, which was in Baltimore. I believe it's moved to Washington, D.C. now. Yeah, it's one of the biggest in the country. Yeah, then there's Boston, Anime Boston, right? There's a big show in Boston, it's, but I know that's not as big. Uh, I yeah. say Anime Matsuri right. down in Texas is huge. Uh, Otakon is, is pretty much the other huge name. Mm-hmm. Oh, and then, of course, yeah, Anna, Anime Fest in Anaheim. Yeah, but that's not up with those two. Right. Oh, I thought that was the biggest show of all. Well, it may be bigger for numbers. Right. Um, but I would say the other two are more story than legend. There you go. Okay. Well, there's, you know, there's a very thriving, I mean, there's so many dozens and dozens of, of shows uh, every year throughout the United States and around the world. I mean, these shows are thriving and the fandom is thriving and um, it's fascinating to see. But, you know, just because a show is run by professionals, quote unquote, doesn't mean it's professional. Oh, no, it doesn't. And Many an amateur is far more professional than these professionals, yes. dear listeners. So that brings us to Walker Stalker, <laughs> the saga of Walker Stalker. Uh, so I've probably been alluding to this in my various Con Wars tales over the years. Someone could write a sad country song about this one, people. Oh, boy, they can. So, But uh, as the, t- the name Walker Stalker suggests, this started out as a Walking Dead convention, and it had a... Uh, offshoot called Heroes and Villains, which is now called Fan, uh, let's see, what's it called? It's like Fan Fest, but it's not called Fan Fest. Um, oh yeah, Fan Fest. It is called Fan Fest. <laughs> which was sort of like Arrowverse shows. In fact, Stephen Amell, who plays Green Arrow, was actually an investor in these shows. So I'd say about th- three years ago, they were just making money bags, like garbage bags full of money. There's a famous story in The Hollywood Reporter about that. But since then, Amel left, perhaps with sensing that uh, there was too many of these shows, number one. And also, you know, The Walking Dead is not the powerhouse it used to be. Uh, a lot of the most famous cast members have left. They've been, you know, eaten by zombies or mysteriously left. Uh, and, or turned into zombies. Yes. And so uh, there is not as, you know, the, the shows are slowing down a little bit. So... Apparently, what's been happening is this guy, James Frazier, has been running Walker Stalker, and I've been hearing that, um, listen, fans get ripped off, vendors get ripped off, and that's horrible. But when they're not playing the celebrities, that's when you really know a show is in trouble. And uh, Carrie Payton, who plays Ezekiel on The Walking Dead, actually tweeted uh, last week, or a couple weeks ago, he says, I'm not coming. Norman's not coming. Melissa's not coming. Denai's not coming. Cooper's not coming. Confirming more. Time to shut this SHIT down. Uh, and then he said, hashtag, sick of it, hashtag Walker Stalker Con. So, uh, yeah, so the, basically the cast of The Walking Dead is saying, that's it. We're not going to these shows anymore because they, they haven't paid them. And then there was also... That's not how hashtags work, people, by the way. Yeah, I know. Anyway, so there is this really, um, there was a very unfortunate, um, uh, incident that happened with the cast member Angel Theory, who was at the Walker, most recent Walker Stalker, uh, that was in Atlanta, and, uh, she is deaf, and she has a dog, a, an emotional support dog, and she is also in the cast of The Walking Dead. She's one of the celebrity guests. She's the celebrity guest, yes. people. And, like, a security guard just saw her dog and was yelling at her, and because she's 
deaf. She couldn't hear what he was saying, and he got very angry at her. And another cast member kind of came and had to calm it down. Anyway, I mean, I get that security can be overzealous, but this is really sounds ridiculous. But, you know, it was pointed out that she hadn't been provided with an American Sign Language interpreter, uh, and neither were uh, was there an interpreter available for any attendees who might be there. Yeah, uh, and uh, incidentally, things financially have gotten so bad that as per the article in The Beat, um, Walker Stalker Con has been given an F rating by the Better Business Bureau. Do you know how hard it is to get an F rating from the Better Business Bureau? So what I've been here, so I've actually been researching this story for a while, and I, I didn't have time to really nail down all the specifics, but apparently what they are doing is, like I said, they used to have about a dozen shows, but now... They have the show in Atlanta, which is where The Walking Dead is filmed, by the way, uh, and also or the sequels or the spinoffs. But, uh, but like they'll announce a show in Nashville and then they'll sell advance tickets to it and sell advance tables to these shows. And so they started doing this at the beginning of this year where so vendors signed up, uh, fans bought the ticket and then at the last minute be like, oh, we're canceling the show. And guess what? Nobody got their money back. I have lots of people writing to me, uh, just saying, you know, they're not oh getting their money, their money refunded, and that's why the Better Business Bureau gave them such a bad rating. Well, but that's definitely worthy of an F. Absolutely. But guess what? It gets worse. The story my, gets my, my. even worse. Now, you could find lots of stories of woe about Walker Stalker. Um, they, they remove, uh, get, you know, bad comments from their Facebook page. So everybody has been getting on this guy, James Fraser, who owns it. So... As of two weeks ago, it was announced that he would be stepping down. And uh, it was announced that a new fellow would be taking over. And his name is uh, Michael DeVault. And on the Walker Stalker fan page, there was all these posts from this guy, Michael DeVault, saying, oh, I'm going to do an Ask Me Anything. And there was a video of him taking fan questions. And he's like, you know, will, will I get my money back? He's like, oh, we're trying to get everything refunded, you know, saying all this stuff. So that was on the week of the, I'm looking at my story on the beat so I can get the exact date. It was one week ago, actually. Yeah. It was actually only, uh, we're recording this on Thursday. So it was a week ago Monday, the previous Monday, uh, that this guy announced this. So as of Monday of this week, after he'd been there for one week, he announced on his Facebook page, hey, I'm stepping down as president of Walker Stalker and uh, go with God, guys. And so they reached out to Fraser to say if he had a comment, and he said, this happened so suddenly that I have nothing to say. So what really happened, I have no idea. It turns out this DeVault guy had run a con called Galacticon in Texas that has a very checkered past that had a lot of issues with it. So maybe he wasn't the salvation showrunner with yeah. some thought. Well, and another possibility is, quite frankly, maybe he didn't know what he was getting himself into. <laughs> because, you know, you can get into something thinking, I'm going to turn it around. This is going to be easy. How bad could it be? How bad can it be? I'm going to be the savior. I'm going to be the clean broom. And you get in there and you realize it is so messed up. You can't fix it. Nobody can fix it. It needs to burn to the ground. And you don't want to burn down to the ground on your watch. And you don't want it to be a particularly long thing on your resume. If it's only a week, you can leave it off. That's right. And <laughs> yes, and all the videos starring DeVault were scrubbed from the yeah. website. Yeah, Sad, I think because I had them bookmarked to watch <laughs> a report on it before I could even do it. The guy was gone. Yeah, I, th I think he uh, realized that he was um, 
the boat he was taking over as a new <laughs> captain of was a burning garbage scow, and that he better, you know, jump ship before he had to yes. get down with it. I think probably he looked at the books and was like, holy hand grenade, this is a disaster. And There's uh, literally nothing we can do yeah. about this. So, I mean, listen, uh, we're laughing because, as you know, at The Beat and on More to Come, we love a Wenaconis crap story. Everybody loves these stories. But it's not funny when you're the one who's gotten ripped off. It's not funny when you're the one who's had the bad experience. And, you know, the fact that this show is ripping off so many people, including the cast of The Walking Dead, is really uh, terrible. And you know what? Carrie Payton's right. They need to shut this down. Frankly, I think what we're laughing at is not the pain and suffering of the convention goers or the vendors or the stars. It is at the richly deserved downfall yes. of the scammy idiots running it. Right. Because you'd think the least you could do is not rip off your celebrity guests. Because then you won't have a convention. <laughs> but no. Yeah, that's really low, man. That is so low when you're not playing. And you know what? That just sucks. That's just really, really, that's really, yeah. it's just bad. And yeah, you, some I, people might say, are they incompetent or are they scammers? To which the answer is yes. Yes, they're both. And you know, listen, I criticize a lot of showrunners. As you know, this is my major field of study. Um, you know, we've talked about Ace Comic Con on here a couple times and the show is run by Stephen Shamus and it really is a celebrity autograph show. Uh, but I have to say, it's like, you know, they said they were only going to do a handful of shows a year and guess what they only do two or three shows a year they have huge guests you know they'll have chris evans or um they know what they're doing sebastian stan i mean you know ben affleck i mean they have huge 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 guests and the people who go seem to be like hey i'm gonna pay two hundred dollars for this nerd liberty's autograph and they stand in line but they get what they came for they right get what they came for the runners of the show know what they're selling and deliver it that's right. That's right. You know, and if that's not what you want to buy, that's fine. But they are, they are using an honest business model and they're doing it honestly. Yes. And I have a, a story, a, a larger story about Walker Stalker up at the beat where I also look at what's going on in Texas, uh, which is a big state, but has like dozens and dozens of shows. And some of them have, okay, so they threw a thing that was called, um, uh, it, it was like a preview con for this celebrity fanfare that is a, a relatively new show and that's run by a guy who's a real um, loudmouth but um but he does pay people and they 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 do get you know what they pay for but anyway they had this free autograph show it's like you could go in uh and pay, it's called celebrity fan fest and they had uh, Zach Levi and Brenda Fraser. You'd have to pay for their autographs. But people like Brandon Ruth, Lindsay Wagner, tons of people like that, you could get free autographs. And if you paid the admission price, and guess what? Hardly anybody went to this con because no one knew it existed. Uh, it might. I don't. I, nobody can really say why. Uh, why this didn't do that well? Uh, but the, one of the things is there's just too many shows in Texas. There's in San Antonio. There's like six or seven major shows in San Antonio. That's ridiculous. Yes. And uh, also, guess what? I mean, no offense to Lindsay Wagner. It's possible that a lot of people who want her autograph in Texas have her autograph. Everybody might have her autograph. All these people, they might already have their autograph and their photo with some of these celebrities. Right. And some people may not have realized... Because it fell through the cracks, because there are so many shows that you wouldn't have to pay $200 to get these autographs, that you could just, you know, get right. them. All right. Well, it's certainly a marketing fail. 
on their part. But, um, you know, they're saying it was great and it went well. But I say vendors did not do well at this show who paid for their tables, by the way. So anyway, uh, you know, the, the stars at night are big and bright, and uh, but not at the cons of Texas. So um, you worked on that one for a while. I Heidi. know. I just it came out. I'm telling you, there's all this stuff ready to bubble up inside me. And, you are a natural and that's podcast. That's why I'm a host. podcast. Yes, yes, I'm a natural blabberer. Well, see, this listeners, this is why I spent years trying to convince Calvin and Heidi to do a podcast because <laughs> I knew, I knew in my heart they'd be naturals. Well, they are. And Kate, so are you. You're a natural as well. And uh, uh, you know, I'm sad Calvin isn't here. I do enjoy once a year or so we do do a Calvin free show, and it's always it's always fun to to. Um, to talk to you one-on-one yeah. yeah sometimes when there are three people although it is awesome it's a little more crowded yeah and there's a certain extra space to having two people i do i like i i i enjoy i i wouldn't want it to be all the time because calvin of course you know same when i'm not here or when kate's not here yeah uh, the three of us are what makes the magic but it's sometimes it's good to have a bottle episode like we're having right now exactly so Okay, uh, we'll talk about fans having fun. Um, or not. Or not. Let's talk about what happened to uh, David Benioff and uh, David Weiss and their lives, their wonderful deals, and how they lost Star Wars. Yes. While also gaining a highly remunerative Netflix deal. Yeah. At the same time. Yeah. Um, okay, dear listeners. So... Last year <laughs> on Fandom, people who all along had been like, don't worry, guys, don't worry, guys, they'll pull it out, they'll land the ship on Game of Thrones, had to apologize to their friends and say, well, okay, maybe endings aren't everything, because... The final season of Game of Thrones could be said by the most generous to have gone out with a bit of a fizzle. And there was a certain amount of unhappy fan response. A certain amount. More on this later, dear <laughs> listeners. We're not quite <laughs> yeah, there we're yet. No, nah, this is a big topic, yeah. Right. We're, we're just we're just reading you in here, yeah, okay? We're just easy in. Meanwhile, we're pushing the canoe into the river. Yes. Meanwhile, two of the many many people announced to be involved with one Star Wars property or another were the gentlemen behind the Game of Thrones TV show, Benioff and Weiss. This had always been controversial. Because Star Wars is, how shall we put this, different in tone from yes. Game of Thrones. Yes. Leading to people being like, oh, this is going to be the rapey Star Wars. <laughs> or how many naked Star Wars aliens do we really need? We need a lot. Let's put it that way. It's time. It's time. Um, and, you know, a certain amount of speculation as to whether they would fit the tone of the property. So... Several months after the final season of Game of Thrones. <laughs> that is to say, this month, 
it was announced that uh, they wouldn't be doing a Star Wars trilogy after all. So the reason that was given was that they had also, at the height of their powers, signed this gigantic, like, $100 million deal with Netflix to produce shows for Netflix, because Netflix is signing up every showrunner in the under, you know, so they signed up Ava DuVernay and J.J. Abrams. And and to be fair, Netflix is not showing any sign of souring on this deal. No, but then... It seems that the uh, D and B can only do one show at a time, so they said they just didn't have enough bandwidth to devote to Star Wars. Well, to be fair, Star Wars eats years of creators' lives. Yes, Star Wars movies take a long time to make. Kathleen Kennedy wants everything to be perfect, and Netflix hired them not for one show, not for two shows. But for a giant, multi-million dollar, ginormous packet of as-yet-undesignated shows. You know, I'm very, like, like what's going on? So so we could talk, get back, I want to get back to Benioff and Weiss, but I have to say, what's going on with Star Wars is actually very interesting because, um, you know, they made Solo. Uh, okay, so they made Rogue One. They were going to make these standalone movies. They made Rogue yeah. One with this guy. And that was a hit. And that was fine. It was a hit, but he, but the guy who made the movie, they didn't like what he was doing, so they had to fire him and bring in uh, two other people to finish the movie. Right. Okay. But they did, then, and it worked. And then Solo, well, I'm not a fan, but I get it. Okay. But I mean, it, but I mean yeah. they landed yes. the ship. Yes. So then... Uh, Solo, uh, they fired the filmmakers and brought in uh, Ron Howard to finish it up, and, and that movie met that with that did great not demand. do as well. It's really, you know, it's a perfectly pleasant little movie. It's, right? it's fine, it's, it's, but, but it's just got over overhyped. Right. Well, I mean, part of it is that that was the second Star Wars movie in the same year. Yes, too much Star Wars, and there is but, such a thing as too many Star right. Wars movies. But so let me, but but here's you know, so okay, so they hired like the Lego Movie guys to make this solo movie. Maybe I, I mean, I guess they thought it'd be funny and quippy, and that isn't what happened. And then they hired this gloomy Gus to make Rogue One, and that wasn't what they, Kathleen Kennedy wanted either. Then they had James Mangold was going to make a Boba Fett movie. Now that sounds amazeballs. And then they're like, oh, we're not going to do that. And it's like, oh, so now you, and you know, James Mangold, I just saw Ford versus Ferrari, which is a race car movie starring Matt Damon and Christian Bale. This movie is... Ooh, is that out? So, no, I saw a screening. It is oh, okay. so entertaining. It is so entertaining. And Christian Bale has won my heart for all times with his portrayal of this movie. But anyway, Mangold knows what he's doing. So you... I mean, so, and I, then there was a, a Obi-Wan Kenobi movie also that had a really awesome screw, uh, Well, that's going to be turned into the Obi-Wan Kenobi television yeah, show. Yeah, I guess. I mean, it would have made a great movie is what I'm trying to say, but yeah. maybe not. Maybe a TV show's well, better for Disney+. Plus. Well, yeah. I, I kind of, one thing I think, I could be wrong, but given that it was for three pre-existing characters, that it was going to be a Boba Fett movie after a Han Solo movie after... Yeah, I get it, I get it. That... I think the lesson they may have taken away from the fact that Rogue One did better than Solo is that people may not want a retread of the same character. Yeah. They may want something that doesn't feel like a Star Wars novel. Well, I think, uh, you know, not to litigate Solo again here, but I, I think the reality is that Harrison Ford as uh, Han Solo is the most one of the most indelible uh, screen yeah. uh, performances of all time, and there's just no one or no thing that could possibly fill his shoes, and nothing could ever, uh, you yeah. know. Now Boba Fett is a guy in a helmet who doesn't talk, right. so you know. But uh, but arguably, Boba Fett is one of those things where. Okay, when I'm heavily linked into the Star Wars fan community, listeners, I have self-disclosure here. <gasps> oh, I know. 
conflict of interest. But uh, when all these movies were announced, when they announced Solo, when they announced Boba Fett, not when they announced Obi-Wan Kenobi, that people were psyched for. Um, for Solo and for Boba Fett, the response was, do we really need that? I just don't think that I, I feel like that was a certain amount of imperial overreach. I don't think that these, when they revisited it, that they really decided that this was a mo- movies that really needed to happen. That they were almost maybe lazy movie concepts. So they're just like, what pop characters are popular? Let's just give them a movie. Yeah, I mean, yeah, obviously this is two cult characters. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, and it's, so it's, I think they rethought. Yeah, you know, on the other hand, I mean, the Star Wars, if you're a Star Wars fan, then you know the Star Wars Extended Universe has extended for 40 years. And I mean, there's countless novels yeah, and cartoons. But that's and, almost part of it, yes. right? Because you're, if you're retreading... And comic books also. If you're retreading the exact same material mm-hmm. as the EU has trampled so heavily, there may be just less urgency among the fans to see well it. there certainly was no urgency among anyone to see this trilogy by Betty Offen no so as soon as I heard that was announced that got a rise out of people it was like eh solo eh Boba Fett Oh no, Benioff and Weiss. So, Whatever shall they do? So apparently, this ouster or this stepping away apparently was their decision to step away. It wasn't like Kathleen Kennedy fired them; like she has so many. Uh, this was in the works for a while, and it, 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 over the summer. But uh, you know, fans jumped on an appearance. So, so the, Benioff and Weiss skipped out on San Diego because they did not want to face fans. Okay. And indeed, the beloved, the once beloved cast at Game of Thrones showed up for their once beloved panel, which was supposed to be a victory lap at San Diego in Hall H. And instead, it was very uncomfortable. I mean, the tide has turned. They turned, they turned on adorable Nicholas Costar Waldo. They turned on, on Hodor. I mean, come on. It was so, so harsh. So harsh. So, uh, anyway, but they did. Benioff and Weiss uh, ventured forth from their cave on Octo and did a panel at this uh, like TV festival, and uh, it was a little bit controversial. Yeah, well, it was extra controversial because they admitted they had kind of been flying by the seat of their pants. That all along they'd been like, "Oh no, there's a plan. There's a plan. <laughs> we got a plan." And now this TV festival, they're like, yeah, we didn't really have a plan. Well, I... the plan was we're going to follow the books and we're going to do our best. Um, and it, as long as there were books, that plan worked pretty well. But once there weren't books, well, they were really new to doing a TV show. This is actually their first TV show. Yes. And without the structure um, that the books gave them, they maybe had some problems with pacing and making it work. So I think, okay, so this, I have so many thoughts about this because it's like, it's like a, you go to a great meal and the first, uh, it's an adventure. It's a seven course banquet and like there, it's adventurous and the wine is really good and you know, something isn't what you expected and, but it's, but it's still so enjoyable. And then the dessert comes and it's like hostess cupcakes and, and, you know, you're like, wow, this was the crappiest banquet I ever went to. 
Um, so, I mean, I, I, I just, I, I, I feel like fandom is so fickle because, I mean, it was, they were so loved. I mean, okay, first off, I, I, I want to hear what you did, but just to get my, my thesis out there, it's like, yes, what made Game of Thrones great? George R.R. R. Martin. Absolutely. What else made it great? A fantastic cast, a great theme song, beautiful costumes, oh, yeah. an incredible crew, very smart, literate scripts, um, great acting. I was like, and guess what? Benny Alpha Weiss had a lot to do with all of that stuff. That is true. But at the same time, sometimes when a crucial ingredient is missing, the end product... Uh, the ending, yes. The end product doesn't work out as well. And perhaps from your perspective, Heidi, it seems like it came out of nowhere. But from someone more, more hooked into fan circles, I would say it wasn't out of nowhere. Because... There was a rising tide of dissatisfaction in recent seasons that people were saying, for it started off with kind of a certain amount of muttering about why is there an extra rape plot that wasn't even in the books? Right. And then things like, well, the acting is still great, but the writing seems to be slowly going downhill. And people going, oh, I don't know, maybe this is mid-season slump. Maybe, you know, once we get up into the final season, things will really rev up into something awesome. So I think a lot of people were pinning their hopes on the, on on the, the landing. That sticking the landing. And then when the landing wasn't stuck, especially because, you know... People don't care if something they don't care about stinks, right? Like, if there's a movie out there that you don't even care about, like, if there's some movie called Steve, and the movie (laughs) called Steve is crappy, like, you just don't care. Right. Nobody cares. Right. Sort of, kind of, yeah. I mean, maybe if it's especially bad, you'll have a good time making fun of it, but basically no one will care. The fact that people invested themselves in the original series because seasons, because they liked it so much, because it really did pull it off, meant that people felt disappointed in something that they had been getting more out of and hoping for more out of as they felt quality was declining. So, and so they wouldn't have gotten as mad if they hadn't cared as much to begin with. Okay, but they cared because of a lot of the decisions that Benioff and Weiss made. Now, I have a little slightly different take on the last few seasons of Game of Thrones, okay? So, you know, I did a whole rewatch the whole show uh, to, you know, prior to the final season mm-hmm. so I could really wallow in it as much as possible. And it was very obvious, like, season... I mean, you know, setting aside all the uh, complaints about all the extra added rapes. I mean, that's a, kind of a separate subject in some ways, but I mean, obviously a piece of it. But just talking about the pacing, I think what's interesting is that there was this one season where the books, they had passed the books and they really just started meandering around. And, yep. you know, um, uh, Brienne and, and, you know, Pod were just wandering through endlessly. Everybody, uh, Daenerys was just wandering. Everybody was just wandering around for a whole season. It got really boring. And then... 
in the next, then they made a decision that it was going to last three more seasons, this exactly more episodes, okay? And then they started wrapping things up really quickly. Now, I understand this was a little divisive, but as just a casual TV goer, it was in, like, I'd say the season, the next to last season was actually incredibly satisfying because it would be like, oh, finally, you know, Arya and Sansa met up, you know? I mean, it was all these things that they'd been years in the making finally happened. And I also, you know, it isn't, you know, if Game of Thrones had ended after the Battle of Winterfell, aside from the fact that it was very dark, everyone would be very happy. Remember how excited everyone, like people were in bars cheering yeah. when Arya killed the Snow King, the, the, the White Walker. People were standing up and cheering. But Heidi, it is of a piece. It's all of a piece. And if you... Part of what ties a story together is the ending. Right? It is not unreasonable for people who have cared about a story and been following it and to have seen the seeds of this ending... Especially when it involves characters they've spent a lot of time in, time with, that have become, you know, culturally iconic. Absolutely. That story arcs that many people were totally okay with. They, I didn't get a lot of complaints that people did not, spoiler, 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 did not want Daenerys to go evil. They just thought that for something so major, it just happened. They wanted it, yeah, yeah, to be developed more. It was right. You know, especially, Given that there was an entire season of meandering, yes, people were like, "Wait, so this thing we've been waiting years for happens in like five seconds, and not for a reason we're super understanding well, it does, of." It does seem that episode after between, I thought the bell, you know, we we could spend this whole podcast. But, but we've got to cut off this actual. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, I th- if there was that one episode between uh, the Battle of Winterfell and the Bells, it was that one episode, episode four, where they lost everybody. Uh, the one where they killed uh, Melisandre. That was the one that did it, you know. And so, yeah, I, I mean, I'm not saying. So it was, I, they were obviously tired of it. But I, I just, you know, let me let me throw this in here, okay? Because uh, I feel like the joy that Game of Thrones gave me for eight freaking years can't be destroyed by those last three episodes. Nor should it if it didn't for you. But I don't think... It is unreasonable people to be like, that was an unnecessary failure. So is it the journey or the destination? It's both. Mm. Because if you take a long, glorious journey and end up at a garbage pit, you'll be like, why did we stop here? Um, it's both. It's both. Anybody who's gotten incredibly frustrated with the J.J. Abrams mystery box style story knows that if you spend all your time getting everybody really worked up for an ending, and Game of Thrones does that. Right. It ramps you up. It ramps it up. It ramps it up. It's it's a lot of emphasis is pushed on this ending. Foreshadowing like crazy. that If you make a big deal of your ending, you have to have a proper ending. If you're like Star Trek you don't have to have much of an ending, right? Because the the point of Star Trek is the journey. They're never foreshadowing it's an not, ending. Uh, it's yeah. not about They're an ending. They're boldly going, yeah. It's just about continuing to boldly go. Yeah, it's a five-year mission. Exactly. 
Game of Thrones is not the Star Trek model. Right. So, I mean, I, I think, I think it was artistic dissatisfaction. Now, of course, fans feel very passionate. And also the internet's a very personal place. Yes. And this is, I think, what Heidi and I have been itching to talk about. Um, so, yeah. Sometimes the boundaries between what is public space and what is fan space and what is creator space is a little blurry on the internet. Absolutely. And what's personal space is a little blurry on the internet. Yes. So fans may feel like they're just having a very heated discussion of a property and a very heated review. And, I mean, even look at Publishers Weekly. When we review a book, we'll say, uh, author's name here does this or that. Right. You know? So the author's name is in there. Right, anyway, so, but the, because, because they were the big face of the show, and very clear that the prime movers, you know, their names got mentioned in, by everybody well, they, talking about the stuff they didn't like. Well, they did a little snippet after every episode explaining right. what they just did. I mean, right. they absolutely were the, you know, the public face of the show. And I mean, it's certainly, you know, I yeah. mean, yeah, it is on their shoulders. I'm not trying to say no, it is. Yeah, but what I mean, what I meant is that, People, when they are reviewing something, when they're talking about why didn't I like it, why was this not good, why blah, 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 they will typically mention the creators of the thing in it. Right. And if fans think they're in fan space, and most fans don't assume the creators will ever see them or notice them, they can get into a certain amount of fan hyperbole. Right. Fans can definitely get into the land of hyperbole, where if people will say things like, ah, burn it all to the ground. Yeah. Well, hey, guess who went through this first? Uh, a little gentleman by the name of George R. R. Martin, because he was also hounded into, you know, private time because everybody was so mad at him for not finishing the books. And I, I think I understand now why he didn't. I mean, would you, if you were George R. R. Martin, why on earth would you go out there and finish these books now? Money. He can make money doing anything. Artistic satisfaction. I mean, this is your magnum opus. You're not going to finish your magnum opus just because fans i don't think that's why i don't know girl i don't see any upside for him to do it you know i mean obviously there's an upside obvious yes and obviously there's a story that he wants to tell and you know he did give input into that horrible right. ending it but, was very rushed and yeah. you know unsatisfying yeah, in that it's, way it's like if it you set up. if you give an outline yes I mean, as an outline, it, it looks like a perfectly good outline. It's the execution of the plot points on said outline. Yeah. Well, I mean, I th we we have touched on this, and, you know, we're almost out of time on this episode, but we certainly could do a whole episode just talking about this. And, uh, but, you know, of the... the Let's roll this the, around back to Star Wars. No, the closest, though, just the closeness now of how everything is intertwined between the fandom and... The, the property, the, the product, I still want to say product, the content, the content and the fandom are now so closely, they're on an equal footing. And I mean, things like a, 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 o, a, a o three, uh, you know, are a huge part of that. And well, I mean, they were think, there to begin with. I know, but I'm saying that's a very positive part of it. But I mean, it's like everybody has their own head canon that they hold as equal to the quote unquote real canon. Well, I mean, people have, we don't, let's not get into death of the author. We'll be here all day. Yeah. But I think part of it is that I think a lot of content creators are maybe tied a little too closely in with their fan base that both their publishers, their networks, and they themselves see only the 
publicity potential and the, oh, maybe this will get more viewers and the ego boost aspects of it. And they don't seem to understand there's a benefit to having a little bit of space between creators and fans. Yes, and yet every creator now is told that they must be on social media all the time to build up their fan base to be able to survive and make money. Yeah, but if you look at someone like John Rogers who, you know, has for many of his shows such as The Librarians and Leverage um, you know, he does he have a fan presence where he would write a little thing about every show? Sure. Would he you know, entertain a few comments in the comments section? Yes. And it was a very cordial presence, but it was very professional while being cordial. So did he wade in on on the comment section of some fan's blog? No, he did not. Unlike several unspecified authors who have waded into the comments of several blogs of friends of mine, which are just meant for fans talking to each other. Like, guys, don't Google yourself. Don't wade into fan space. Don't get head up over fan space. Like... You can do social media engagement, but give yourself a but little breathing room. Give yourself some breathing right, room. Right. Do and, yourself a favor. And that's very, very problematic. But, I mean, you can also see how. I mean, for instance, you know, at the dawn of the Internet back 20 years ago. not That's a joke. I know it's not the dawn of the Internet. Um, you know, on Genie. Genie was uh, in CompuServe, uh, where, where a lot of these fan bases started. You know, George R. R. Martin was on Genie. And Neil Gaiman was on Genie. And they all had these topics. And, you know, like you could interact with your favorite author and it was so much fun and nice right and everything was very uh, so I, I mean I understand that it's wrong to go invade fan spaces but I, I mean it's also like uh, you know take it to private also I mean if you're sitting there like you know talking about things well, I, I mean, mean but on the other hand I think it's not a matter of like oh it's wrong it's like what are you even doing here you're embarrassing yourself right it's like it's like if you see people having a conversation in the park about a play you wrote, do you say, oh, they should be having this conversation in their living room? Or do you just, like, think for a minute about what is the point of this action? Yes. You know, like, I, I don't mean this because for the defense of fans. I mean this for the benefit of creators. Like, they're talking about you as a creative entity. They're not talking about you as a human being because they don't know you. Right. And you're probably better off with them not knowing you, so you don't pull an Aaron Sorkin. Because way <laughs> back in the quote-unquote dawn of the internet, there was a uh, television reviews website and forum called Television Without Pity, which before that was Mighty Big That's TV. That's right. That was one of the, the pillars of the early internet. Yes, and... Um, you know, they review the West Wing. And Aaron Sorkin got into it with the people on his own fan forum. Right. And then got so mad, he wrote a not very good West Wing episode all about how mad he was at fans. So don't you think the fans were a little excited at first that they were arguing with Aaron Sorkin? Come on. In 1999, for sure they were. You know, what I'm, I'm saying is that I'm talking about Aaron Sorkin. Yes, I know. Aaron Sorkin and his reputation long term, especially with fans, would have been better off since he can't. I mean, 
If Aaron Sorkin were someone who could handle getting into it with some fans, that would be fine. Well, he's yeah, I'm I'm a huge Aaron Sorkin non-fan. Right, I actually I, don't like him at all. But so right, what I'm saying I'm is, happy like, with anything that you know. Yeah. What I'm shuts saying, him down. Right, but I'm saying is what hurt hurt his reputation was the was the fact that he couldn't handle it. Right. Right. And so, so I think. And if he had handled it in a professional manner, if his, sure, you go into some fan forum and you have a polite discussion and you say, I disagree, whatever, like, that's fine. That just is a story for people to tell their grandkids, right? It's when, when professionals interaction about their own property becomes less professional. Yes. They are the ones who suffer. I'm not, the fans don't suffer. The fans just get a little emotionally banged up. It's the creators who are hurting their fan, their, their connection to their fan base long term. So let me ask you this. Do you think that Benioff and Weiss should have gone to San Diego Comic Con? I think Benioff and Weiss needed to make their own decisions. We don't know what would have gone down had they been there. It would have been horrible. Uh, well, I, I mean, <laughs> I think if they had handled it with grace, it probably would have ended up okay in the end. But if they couldn't handle it, if it was a bit much for them, that's fine. They should make the decisions that protect them. It's all cool. Um, I mean, just to give you, I will pull this out because this is the most perfect example ever. The creators of Stargate Atlantis. Ah. Um said that they were canceling their show to do Stargate Universe online to their fans. They said this because, quote-unquote, well, I mean, not quote-unquote, I know they don't know the exact quote, um, because you guys will watch anything we make and print the name Stargate on because we don't really need you guys because you're all, like, women <laughs> and not our precious 18 to 35-year-old male... <laughs> Thing. So we're going to create something aimed at them because you'll watch anything. And then they made Stargate Universe, which flopped. Hmm. And then they went back, instead of just going, okay, it flopped, they went back to the fan forum. And I don't remember which one of them, I think it was Malazi, went on like a rant about how it was all the fault of those bitter Stargate Atlantis fans who just wouldn't watch Stargate Universe. And right. like, dude, no fan owes you their love or owes you their viewing you know like you create content hopefully people will love it and if they don't they don't don't get yourself into the weeds with the fans the bottom line in all of this is that we should all go back and watch garth marenghi's dark place the greatest tv show of all times that really deals with this very directly about the uh egotistical author dreamweaver um, and you know what? We are out of time. We could just sit here and talk about this all day, Kate. So I, next time there's a bottle show with me and Kate, we will revisit fandom. Or not. Or not. I don't know. I think it's an incredibly fascinating topic. And you know what? There will be more to come. come.